Welcome to the Product Podcast by Product School. Here's a preview of today's talk. When you think about the products that are most engaging, most habit-forming, the ones that capture your attention, you will find one or more of these three types of variable rewards. Rewards of the tribe, rewards of the hunt, and rewards of the self. Let me introduce these to you briefly. Rewards of the tribe are things that feel good, that have this element of variability, a bit of mystery, and come from other people. The search for empathetic joy, feeling good because someone else feels good, partnership, cooperation, competition, all forms of variable rewards of the tribe. Best example online is social media. Right? When you open up Facebook and you start scrolling that feed, you're never quite sure what you're going to see. Right? What photos might you find? What videos might you see? What are the comments going to say? How many likes does something get? High degree of rewards of the tribe. A lot of variability associated. Next is the search for resources, what I call rewards of the hunt. Rewards of the hunt stem from our primal search for food and other material possessions. And in modern societies, we buy these things with money. In this podcast, we teach our listeners valuable lessons about product management and transform them into thinking like a product manager. We teach product management, coding, data analytics, and blockchain in 14 campuses worldwide, including San Francisco, New York, and Seattle. You can find more information at productschool.com. Join our Slack community of 25,000 professionals to network and stay tuned for our upcoming events. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. It is so good to be here in my new hometown of New York City. Yeah. Left San Francisco a little while ago, so I'm super pumped to be here with you as a resident, as a fellow resident. So today I'm going to talk about actually a quick overview of my work in terms of how do we build habit-forming products. We're going to save the stuff about distraction for my next book, maybe at the next conference. But what I wanted to do for today was to give you a very quick overview. How many of you by chance have read my book by chance? Anybody here? Okay, a few of you. Oh, great. Terrific, terrific. So what I want to try and get to is actually very quickly go through some of the model for those of you who maybe aren't familiar with it, uh, and then leave some time for Q&A if that's okay, because that's my favorite part. So why don't we dive right in? You know, we have all seen how products and services change our daily behaviors. And so if we want to learn how to change our customer behaviors, how to form these healthy habits in our users' lives, we want to look at the best in the business. Just like if we wanted to be world-class runners, we would call up Usain Bolt. If we wanted to be world-class investors, we might give Warren Buffett a call. And if we wanted to be incredible actors, we would call Keanu Reeves. Are you guys awake? You guys awake? Okay, good. Just testing. Good, good, good. All right, good. You got the joke. Excellent. So the point here is that if we want to be world-class at changing customer habits, we have to look at the best in the business. We have to look at these companies that every single one of them started out as toys, started out as nice-to-haves, started out as companies that everyone dismissed, and yet within the span of a few years, they became these world-changing companies that touched the lives of hundreds of millions, if not billions, of people and are making hundreds of millions, if not billions, of dollars. Who are we talking about? Right? We're talking about Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and WhatsApp and Slack and Snapchat. All of these companies that somehow have profoundly changed people's day-to-day behaviors. How did they do it? What I want to share with you today are the patterns 
behind how these companies change our day-to-day lives. How do they change these habits? Uh, as was mentioned, this is a book I wrote a few years ago called Hooked. Uh, we're, I'm going to give you kind of a very high-level overview today. Uh, there's a lot more examples. I'm going to upset some of you because I'm not going to give you a ton of examples just because we don't have enough time, but there's tons more examples and case studies in the book. Uh, if you don't have the book, I don't care if you go pirate it somewhere. It doesn't really bother me. I already got my advance, so go ahead. <laughs> you, you know how to find stuff free online. I don't really care. So let's start with a definition of what do we talk about when we say the word habit. Habits, by definition, are simply impulses to do a behavior with little or no conscious thought. It's about half of what you do every single day, whether you like it or not, is done out of habit. These impulses to do a behavior with little or no conscious thought. And I believe that we can use these habits for good. That we can change people's lives through the very products that we are building to help them live happier, healthier, more productive, more connected lives by using these habits for good. And so that's why I do what I do. I don't teach this stuff to the gaming companies and Facebook and Google. They already know these techniques. I'm here to teach everybody else the same underlying psychology so that you can change your customers' habits for good. So what is it about these habit-forming products turns out that every single one of these companies that I mentioned, fundamentally inside the user experience, has what's called a hook built into the product. Now, the definition of a hook is an experience designed to connect the user's problem with your product with enough frequency to form a habit. Okay? Connecting the user's problem to your product with enough frequency to form a habit. By the way, do I need to stand here? Does that matter if I go over here? Is that all right? Okay, great. Um, So, what is a hook? A hook has these four fundamental elements. A trigger, an action, and a reward, and finally, an investment. You see here, it's it's an infinite loop. And it's through successive cycles through these hooks that customer preferences are changed, that our tastes are formed, and that these habits take hold. So, let's run through the four steps of this hook. First, we start with triggers, and there are two types of triggers. We have external triggers where the information for what to do is found inside the trigger itself. Click here, buy now, play this, a friend telling you through word of mouth are all examples of external triggers. Now, we in the product community, we know all about these external triggers. We see them every day. This is what we do for a living. We design these external triggers. But what product people don't think about enough and what turns out to be absolutely critical to forming these long-term habits is creating an association with what's called an internal trigger. An internal trigger is where the information for what to do next is not stored outside the user, but is inside the user's own brain. So what we do when we're in a particular place around certain people, uh, partaking in certain situations or routines, or most often when we experience particular emotions, dictates what we do next, dictates our habits that we do with little or no conscious thought. Now, the most frequently occurring internal triggers are these emotions, but not just any emotion. They are specifically negative emotions, negative emotions. So what we do when we're feeling lost or bored or indecisive or fatigued or lonely, what we do when we feel these emotions prompts us to action, gets us to turn to something for relief from this discomfort. And in fact, if you don't believe me, there was a study that I found a few years ago that actually found that people suffering from depression check email more. I just saw three people put away their phones. 
What's the story with that? Why do people suffering from clinical depression check email more? It turns out that people suffering from clinical depression experience what psychologists call a negative valence state. They feel down more often than the rest of the population. And what are they doing to boost their mood to be taken out of that negative valence state? They're going online. They're checking their devices. They're looking at email more often than the rest of the population. But in fact, we all do this to some extent. You don't have to be clinically depressed. We all use products for one reason and one reason only. What's the one reason we use every product or service that you interact with every single day? To modulate our mood, to make us feel something different. Let me ask you, what website or app do we check when we're feeling lonely? Facebook, of course. Somebody said Tinder? (laughs) That's also a certain kind of loneliness. Okay. (laughs) What about when we're feeling unsure about something? Before we scan our brains to see if we know the answer to their question, what do we do? Where are we? We Google it, of course. And what about when we're feeling bored? You know, between 2 and 4 o'clock in the afternoon, there's that big project you don't want to work on right now. Where do you go? You check YouTube. You check Reddit. You look at sports scores, stock prices. You see the news. All of these products and services are happy to cater to this uncomfortable sensation of boredom. Okay? So the lesson here is to know your user's internal triggers. Let me be very clear. We are not creating internal triggers. That's sadistic. We are looking for them. Okay? These already exist. One of the most amazing things about the job that we have as product designers is that we get to solve people's problems. How cool is that? And so what we need to do is to fundamentally be able to understand address and articulate those internal triggers. I can't tell you how many product teams I work with, and they show me, look, Mir, look at all the amazing technological things that our product can do and all the whiz-bang features. But then when I say, yeah, but what's the psychological itch? What's the need? What's the internal trigger? I don't know. So if you don't know what that internal trigger is, you're just hoping to get lucky. You have to understand what that internal trigger is and does it occur with sufficient frequency to build your product upon The next step of the hook is the action phase. The action phase is defined as the simplest behavior done in anticipation of a reward. The simplest thing the user can do to get relief from that psychological discomfort. Let me show you a few examples of some habit-forming products, and I want you to see just how simple this key action, the habit, actually is. Something as simple as a scroll on Pinterest or a search on Google, or what could be easier than just pushing the play button on YouTube. These incredibly simple, discrete behaviors done in anticipation of relief from that psychological discomfort. Now, it turns out that there's actually a formula to help us predict the likelihood of these singular behaviors. How many of you have seen this before? A few of you. Okay. Some of you who said you read my book didn't read it very carefully because it's in the book. (laughs) So this formula predicts the likelihood of any human behavior. It comes from B.J. Fogg at Stanford, and he tells us that for any human behavior B, we need three things at the same time. We need sufficient motivation. We need sufficient ability. Ability is how easy or difficult something is to do. And a trigger must be present for any human behavior. Online, offline, doesn't matter. Let's dive into this. Motivation is defined as the energy for action, how much we want to do a particular behavior. Now, motivation is one of these areas of consumer psychology that we've been arguing about for decades, but Fogg tells us there are six fundamental elements of motivation, six things that we can pull on to make people more or less likely to do a particular behavior. Because all of us as human beings, we seek pleasure and avoid pain. 
We seek hope and we avoid fear. We seek social acceptance and we avoid social rejection. A lot more to be said about motivation, but let's go on to the second part of B equals M-A-T. The A stands for ability, which is defined as the capacity to do a particular behavior, how easy or difficult something is to do. We have known for over 100 years now, and it kind of makes common sense, that the harder something is to do, the less likely people are to do it. So if you break it down, we also have these six elements of simplicity that make something more or less likely to occur based on how much time something takes, how much money something costs, how much physical effort is required to do that action. Brain cycles. This is a big one when it comes to tech products. Because the harder something is to understand, the less likely the user is to do the behavior we've designed for them. Social Deviant says that we become more likely to do something simply for the fact um, that we see other people like us doing it. And finally, Non-Routine says that we become more likely to do something because we have done it before in the past. And this is why habits are so important. Habits have this repeater effect. The more we do a particular behavior, the easier it becomes and the more likely we are to do it in the future. What do we call that? It's called practice, right? The more we do it, the easier it gets, the more likely we are to do it again in the future. So we can use these basic elements and plot them out on this conceptual graph. If you're designing some amazing new website, some awesome new app, whatever kind of user experience, and people aren't using the product, they're not doing what you want them to do, There are only three reasons why. Either the user lacks motivation, high motivation is up here, low motivation is down here. They either lack ability, so if something is easy to do, it's way over there on the ability graph, it's far on the right. If it's hard to do, it's way here on the left. And when the user has sufficient motivation and sufficient ability, they cross that red threshold. And if and only if a trigger is present, the behavior will occur every single time, online, offline, doesn't matter. Let's make this concrete. Think of the last time that a phone rang, phone rang in your life, and you did not pick up the phone. Give me a reason. Why did you not pick up the phone? What's a real reason? What? Didn't recognize the number. Okay, terrific. So you're, you're sitting somewhere, you look at the phone, you heard it ring, or you, or you felt it vibrate. You look at the phone, you say, oh, I don't know that person. It's a telemarketer. I don't want to talk to that person right now. So the trigger was there. You heard it ring. High ability, the phone's right there in your hand. You lack motivation. You don't want to talk to that person right now, so you never cross that red threshold. What's another reason? It has to do with ability or a trigger. You're brushing your teeth. teeth. Okay, so you're, you're busy right now. You're in the shower. You're brushing your teeth. You're listening to me talk right now. Even if you really wanted to pick up that call, right, you were waiting for that call. You had high motivation. You heard the phone ring. It's too hard. You lack ability. You don't want to be that one person in the middle of a row right now that says, oh, excuse me, i got to pick up this call right now. That would be weird. That would be hard to do. Social deviance, physical effort, it's a lot of work, right? So you don't cross that threshold because it's too hard. You lack ability. This zone here, high motivation, with low ability is called frustration. And our users live there all the freaking time. Right? People want to do the behavior that you, you yourself want them to do, but it's too hard to do it. Okay? So anytime we design these, these action phases of the hook, we have got to figure out ways to make the ability of the user as high as possible. We want to make the behavior as easy as possible for them to take the intended behavior. Okay? That's the underlying principle behind that phase of the hook. If you have enjoyed the episode so far, 
check out our upcoming live events at productschool.com slash events. Use the promo code PRODUCTPODCAST in all caps to get a free ticket to the next event in your city. The third step is the reward phase. The reward phase, when we talk about rewards, we have to talk about the brain. And in particular, this area of the brain called the nucleus accumbens, which was first studied by two Canadian researchers by the name of Olds and Milner. And Olds and Milner discovered that when they implanted lab animals with a tiny electrode into this part of the brain called the nucleus accumbens, and they let these lab animals stimulate this part of the brain with a tiny electrical current, these lab animals wanted to do nothing but stimulate this part of the brain again and again and again. In later experiments done on people, when people were given a little button to press on, and every time they pressed on this button, they would send an electrical jolt to this part of the brain, they found that they had to, for some of these people, physically remove the device to get them to stop pressing on these buttons. Now, it turns out that we don't need electrodes in people's brains to stimulate their nucleus accumbens. In fact, your nucleus accumbens is activated every single day. Anytime that there's the promise of luxury goods, certain junk foods, sex, certain chemicals, and of course, right there in the center, our technology. All of these things activate the very same part of the brain. Now, for decades, Olds and Milner believed that the purpose of the nucleus accumbens was to stimulate pleasure. Right? Why else would lab animals and later people incessantly activate this part of the brain if it wasn't because it felt good, right? That would make sense. But that's not what is really the case. In fact, what we now know that Olds and Milner never did is that the nucleus accumbens does not necessarily activate pleasure per se. It activates, it stimulates this stress of desire, this wanting, this craving reflex. Because what you can see from these fMRI studies is that the nucleus accumbens becomes most active in anticipation of the reward. But when we actually get the thing we want, the thing that's finally going to make us happy and will finally feel good, that's when the nucleus accumbens becomes less active. So the way the brain gets us to act is not necessarily by stimulating pleasure per se. It's not about pain or pleasure. It's about pain for pleasure. It's about this itch that we seek to scratch. And it turns out that there is a way to supercharge this desirous response, the stress of desire. Did you know that there is a way that I can teach you how to manufacture desire? Is anybody interested in knowing how to manufacture desire? I'm doing it to you right now. (laughs) So when I took that long pause and I stopped talking for a second and I asked you a question and I waited for a response, some of you perked up. Why did he stop talking? What's going to happen next? What's the answer? It turns out that that bit of mystery is highly engaging. It causes us to focus and it is highly habit-forming. This comes from the classic work of B.F. Skinner. Skinner took these pigeons, he put them in a little box, And he gave them a little disc to peck at. And every time the pigeon would peck at the disc, they would receive a little reward, a little food pellet. And so at first, Skinner could train these pigeons to peck at the disc whenever they were hungry. As long as they had the internal trigger of hunger, they would peck at the disc and receive a reward. Great. That's called operant conditioning. But then Skinner started to actually run out of these food pellets. He literally didn't have enough of them. So he could only afford to give it to the pigeons every once in a while. 
And what he found was when he would sometimes give the food pellet when the pigeon would peck at the disc but wouldn't receive a reward versus other times he would give them a food pellet when they pecked at the disc, what he observed was that the rate of response, the number of times these pigeons pecked at the disc, increased when the reward was given on a variable schedule of reinforcement. Why does that happen? Because variability spikes activity in the nucleus accumbens, creating this desirous response, this wanting reflex. And so in all sorts of products, online and offline, when you think about the products that are most engaging, most habit-forming, the ones that capture your attention, you will find one or more of these three types of variable rewards. Rewards of the tribe, rewards of the hunt, and rewards of the self. Let me introduce these to you briefly. Rewards of the tribe are things that feel good, that have this element of variability, a bit of mystery, and come from other people. The search for empathetic joy, feeling good because someone else feels good, partnership, cooperation, competition, all forms of variable rewards of the tribe. Best example online is social media. Right? When you open up Facebook and you start scrolling that feed, you're never quite sure what you're going to see. Right? What photos might you find? What videos might you see? What are the comments going to say? How many likes does something get? High degree of rewards of the tribe. A lot of variability associated. Next is the search for resources, what I call rewards of the hunt. Rewards of the hunt stem from our primal search for food and other material possessions. And in modern societies, we buy these things with money. So when many people think of variable rewards, we think about slot machines, right? We think about that reward, that the, the money that you might win when you play one of these games of chance. You're not sure what you might win when you play a slot machine, right? Nobody stops watching the rolling slot machine after they've pulled the handle. Turns out we see the exact same psychology at work online. Consider the feed. Have you seen how everything today, particularly on mobile devices, everything has a feed? What is it about the feed? Well, check out LinkedIn, for example, right? You open up LinkedIn, and you start looking at all these interesting stories that have to do with your industry, right? So maybe the first story is not that interesting, the second is not that interesting, but maybe the third or fourth is interesting. And what do I have to do to see more interesting content? What do I have to do? Scroll, right. And so that scrolling uses the exact same psychology as pulling on a slot machine. Both variable rewards of the hunt, searching and searching for that next bit of interesting content. And finally, the last type of variable reward is called rewards of the self. This is about the search for competency, control, and mastery. These are things that are inherently pleasurable. They don't come from other people. It's not about information or monetary rewards. These are things that are intrinsically pleasurable. Best example online is gameplay. So when people play Angry Birds or Candy Crush or any of these other games, they're not playing with other people. They're not necessarily even winning anything, but there's something fun about getting to the next level, the next accomplishment, the next achievement. And I know many of you today are very, business, very serious business people. You don't play these games, right? But if you're anything like me, you play this game every day. Does this look familiar? Your email inbox, that need to check that unread message, finishing the to-dos on your to-do list, or the thing that always gets me is that need to open that one notification on my home screen so I can clear it away. All examples of variable rewards of the self, the search for mastery, consistency, competency, and control. So the lesson here is to scratch users' itch. The variable reward is not some cheesy gamification gimmick. The point of the variable reward is to give users what they came for, to solve their problem, to scratch their itch, and yet have this bit of mystery associated with what they might find the next time they interact with the product. 
Which brings me to the last step of the hook, the investment phase. The investment phase is probably the most overlooked of the four steps of the hook. Because a lot of people think in the product community, hey, just give people what they want, and that's it, we're done. And if, if that's your philosophy, you are missing a huge opportunity. The point of the investment phase is to get the user to come back through the hook. And it does this in two ways. The first way is by loading the next trigger. By loading the next trigger. Something that the user does to bring themselves back. So for example, when you use WhatsApp or Slack or any number of other messaging services and you send someone that message, there is no immediate gratification. Right? There's no immediate reward. There's no points. There's no badges. Nothing really happens when you send that message. Except for the fact that by investing in the platform, you are loading the next trigger and you're likely going to get a reply. And that reply, what's this an example of? An external trigger that prompts you through the hook once again. So not some piece of spammy marketing messaging or something that you sent me, something that I did to bring myself back. That's called loading the next trigger. The second way that investments increase the likelihood of the next pass through the hook is by storing value. Storing value is why I love working in the technology industry as opposed to working in manufacturing, for example, because the kind of products that we build can get better with use. Think about the power of this, right? Everything else, if you think about things that are made out of atoms and and molecules, right? Everything in the physical world, my clothing, these chairs, this laptop, all of these things lose value. They depreciate with wear and tear. But habit-forming technologies can do the opposite. They can appreciate. They get better and better the more we use them. This is incredibly powerful. How do they do this? Well, you see, by adding content to a service. For example, Google Drive. The more content I upload, the more valuable it becomes to me, the more I invest in it. The more data I give to a company, like Mint.com, a personal finance software, the more data I give to them, the better the product becomes. It's tailored to me based on the data I give this company. The more followers someone has, the better the product is as a way to reach their audience. So if tomorrow Twitter were to say, hey, I'm real sorry, but um, Twitter's not free anymore. Okay, So if you want to use Twitter, you have to start paying. Who's going to pay? Is it going to be someone with 10 followers or 10,000 followers? Of course, it's going to be the person with 10,000 followers because they've stored all this value in the form of their follower count. And finally, reputation. Reputation is a form of stored value that users can literally take to the bank because my reputation on Upwork or eBay or Airbnb determines what I can charge for my goods and services. And how likely am I to leave one of these platforms after I've stored all of this positive reputation? Kind of hard to do, right? Suddenly it's hard to leave. Even if, and you're not going to like this, even if a better product or service comes along. So here's the truth that a lot of product people don't like to hear. That it's not the best product that wins. hate to tell you this, guys. It's not the best product that wins. It's the product that can capture the monopoly of the mind that captures the market. It's by passing users through the trigger, action, reward, and investment through successive cycles. This is how tastes are formed. This is how preferences are shaped. This is how our habits take hold. So if you are building the kind of product or service that necessitates a habit for your business model to succeed, you have got to answer these five fundamental questions of number one, what's the internal trigger that the product is addressing? What's the external trigger that gets the user to the key action? 
where the, what, which is defined as the simplest behavior done in anticipation of a reward. How can it be made simpler? Then is the reward fulfilling and yet leaves the user wanting more? And then finally, what's the bit of work? What does the user do to increase the likelihood of the next pass through the hook? Now, before I take questions, there's one more topic I'd like to address, which is the morality of manipulation. I know what that's shifting in your seats and a little uncomfortable laughter is about. If you were thinking during this presentation, hey, is this okay to do to people? Is this kosher to use their hidden psychology to get them to do what we want them to do? I say bravo. That's terrific. Because let's face it, anytime we are changing people's behavior to meet our interests, particularly commercial interests, that, my friends, is a form of manipulation. And so we need to be very careful about how we apply these techniques because this is the technology that people take to bed with them every night. It's the first thing we reach for in the morning before we even say hello to our loved ones. So we have to ask ourselves, what responsibility do we have in changing user behavior? And what I encourage you to do is to not use this stuff for frivolous purposes, but to use it for good, to help people find meaning in their lives, to help them live healthier, happier, more connected, more enriched lives by using these habits for good. I want to leave you with the words of Gandhi, which I want to take a little bit of liberties with because I'm speaking to product people here. And what I want you to do is to build the change that you wish to see in the world. Thank you very much. And, and as I take a, a few questions, I would, can I take a few questions? That's my favorite part. Just a few. Right. Okay, good, that's a good question. So um, first of all, uh, the companies that I'm speaking to, that I hope to influence, uh, are not the ones you're thinking of, <laughs> right? I, you know, Facebook and Google and Instagram and WhatsApp and Slack, they don't need this stuff. They already know this stuff. They're the case studies I use to teach you all how to build the kind of stuff that helps people exercise more or connect with friends or save money or whatever it is that you're trying to change your customer's behavior to do. That's my audience. Now, about this question of, look, these techniques work and they work so well that we can change customer's behavior, do we have, uh, is there some kind of role for government? I think there is a role for government in a lot of things that have to do with these big tech companies. Uh, Their status as potential monopolies, what they do with our data is a potential role for regulation. Do I think that we we could, even if we wanted to, start regulating these companies into building products that we want them to make less good to use? If you hold your breath waiting for these companies to change or for the government to regulate them, you're going to suffocate. Because it's not going to happen. <laughs> they are not going to make their products less good to use. We want them to make products that are better to use, that are more fun, that we enjoy using. That's their job. And that's not a problem. That's progress. It's our responsibility as users of this stuff to learn how to break the hook. Okay, I am just as much of an advocate for teaching folks how to build habit-forming products to create healthy habits as I am you using this and saying, wait a minute. This is being done to me, and I don't really like it because I'm spending too much time with these habit-forming products. And if that's the case, terrific. How do we break these habits? Well, we remove the external triggers. We figure out the internal triggers of what's going on inside of us. What are we escaping from that we keep checking Facebook when we're with our kids? Why can't we sit with our friends without constantly being on our phones? What's going on inside us, these internal triggers that we have to come to grips with? How do we make the action a bit more difficult? How do we remove the rewards? And how do we make sure we don't invest in them? So 
Is the government ever going to do anything? I'm very skeptical. Should they? Probably not. And even then, the techniques are out there, right? And we want these products to be better. I think the first place to start is not to wait for the government to do anything about it. If you find that you overuse these technologies from time to time, there's lots we can do. In fact, if you wait till early 2019, my next book is called Indistractable. And it is about exactly this question of how do we manage distraction, not just digital distraction, but all sorts of distraction. Because the fact is, it's not a new problem. Distraction starts from within. It was, it was a problem that humankind had way before Facebook and YouTube and all these things. Please. It's a terrific question. So in, the, in Hooked, uh, there's a chapter on the morality of manipulation. And I give people a two-part test. That if you want to use these techniques and you care about using them ethically, there's a two-part test I want you to pass. The first question that I want you to ask yourself is to look at yourself in the mirror and ask yourself, is this product that I'm working on, that I'm applying these techniques to, is this materially improving people's lives? That's the first question. Okay, So you stand in front of the mirror, you ask, this isn't a way for you to judge other people or for other people to judge you, but do you ask, for your, ask yourself, is what I'm working on materially improving people's lives? But that's not good enough. The second question I want you to ask yourself is, am I the user? Now, why do I want you to ask yourself that? What's the first rule of drug dealing? Does everybody know what the first rule of drug dealing is? What's the first rule? Never get high on your own supply. That's the first rule of drug dealing. Now, why do I want you to ask yourself, am I the user? Because I want you to break that rule. Because if there are any deleterious effects to the product you're working on, guess who's going to be the first person to know about it? You. And if you can put yourself in that category of you are the user, it's, and it solves a problem that you think materially improves people's lives, you are what I call a facilitator. Okay? Not only are you in a good ethical position, but you're also in a great business position because the hardest part of designing a product is to understand the user's needs. That's always the most difficult part. And so if you yourself are the user of the product, you have a gigantic leg up because you know so much about your own problems when it comes to this problem you're trying to solve. And when you look at the archetype of the kind of people who started Facebook and Netflix and Instagram and WhatsApp and Slack and Snapchat, all of them, if you look at their bios, they all qualified as this characteristic of being facilitators. In fact, I skipped over one slide that maybe I'll go back to. This is a great example of a healthy habit that is built through the hook model. This product is, uh, is called Seven Cups. It was built by a psychotherapist in Virginia Beach by the name of Glenn Moriarty. He calls me up one day and he says, look, Nier, I read your book and here's, uh, here's my hook. As a psychotherapist, I know that there are lots of people in my community that don't come in for the therapy that they need. Okay? Uh, parents of a child with a disability, veterans with PTSD, or just any one of us that's feeling lonely and needs someone to talk to, here's the hook. The internal trigger is loneliness, seeking connection. The action is to open the app, and with one button, you're instantly connected with another human being. The, inter- or the variable reward is this rewards of the tribe, this connection with another person on the other end, and the investment, and here's where it gets really interesting, the more you use Seven Cups, the more you're offered the opportunity to be trained as a listener yourself. Third-party studies have found that people who use Seven Cups get better, as better, as mu- it, that is, it is as effective as traditional psychotherapy. So I think this is a great example of how we can use these habits for good. And with that, I wish I could take more questions. I'll be upstairs for a little happy hour. Thank you very much. Thank you, Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Product Podcast. If you liked this episode, 
don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. If you want to know more about our courses and next courts, visit productschool.com. Stay tuned for the next episode to learn more about the secrets in product management.